Hello and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker and I'm here with one co-host this week. I'm Joe Lello. And Andrea had a doctor appointment she couldn't miss, but we've got an excellent guest to keep you guys riveted to your speakers as we discuss how Amazon works, what we need to do to take advantage of the platform, and also some tips for kind of the next level author platform building. Our guest is David Gogrin, who you've probably caught on some of the podcasts by now. He was on one of ours a couple years ago, talking about marketing wide versus Kindle Unlimited and turning strangers into super fans. And I will share a link to that in the show notes, so you can check that one out too. I think almost everything in there is still legit two years later. Uh, and David was born in Ireland. He now lives in a quaint fishing village in Portugal. Apparently, he has a view of the sea right out his window, but he didn't prove it to us, so we're not sure. It could be a brick wall. We don't know. Uh, he writes historical fiction and science fiction under another name, has helped thousands of authors publish their work through his workshops, blog, and writer's books, such as Let's Get Digital, Strangers to Superfans, Book Club Ads Expert, and I, we're going to ask him if it's out now. Amazon Decoded. Um, David, welcome to the show. And how are you doing? Hello, Lindsay. Thanks for thanks for having me along. Um, Amazon Decoded isn't out quite yet. It's done. It's written. It's just waiting to get edited. Problem is, I had three or four things for authors coming at the same time, and I've kind of clogged up the pipes a little bit. But I'm good. I'm good. I've been I've been working around the clock for the last month or so, getting a bunch of stuff ready um, for authors that I'm just starting to release now. Um, but life is good. I moved to moved to Portugal. Uh, about six months ago, just before the whole world went crazy. And um, yeah, it's nice over here. I like it a lot. Well, you mentioned that you've been working on quite a bit. It's been about two years since we had you on the old show. Um, do you want to mention some of the stuff that you've been you've been doing your newsletter real regularly? I subscribe to that. And what all has been going on? Yeah, so I have the newsletter going out every week. And, and that's very useful for me personally, because it's where I get to kind of try out ideas for things. And there's a lot of, you know, books or different things that I've come up with that have started off as, a, as an email to my readers. Um, but yeah, I've got loads of stuff coming soon. I think the only thing that's out right now as we speak is my new reader magnet, which is a book called Following, which I think we're going to talk about in a bit, which is all about author platform. Um, and by the time this airs, um, I think Let's Get Digital, the latest edition will have just popped out. So that'll be the fourth edition. And one interesting thing I'm doing with that is that I'm actually going to release it as a perma-free. So it's a new release perma-free, which isn't something that I've done before. So I'm excited to see um, how that goes. And then I'll, I'll actually give you a world exclusive, Lindsay, because I haven't told anybody this. Uh, I haven't told my list or any, anything. Um, I'm actually going to be releasing a course as well. And it's a free course. And it's specifically aimed at authors who have maybe zero to two books. Those who are either just about to publish their first or just have their first one or two out. And they haven't really got sales rolling yet. And it's aiming to kind of plug that gap because I, I feel like there's a gap between... I think there's a lot of good resources out there for people who want to self-publish to a professional level, you know, um, all sorts of advice about cover design and formatting and, and all that kind of thing. And then there's a lot of stuff on things like Facebook ads and BookBub ads. But I think there's a lot of people kind of falling down in the middle. They are struggling to get their author business up to a sustainable level where they actually have the working capital to invest in ads. Because, you know, if you want to get good at Facebook ads, you're going to need some money to, to, to run some campaigns so that you can learn from that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there, at least I get a lot of replies to my emails. I got a lot of emails from authors. And there are people who are just kind of, you know, they, they have like the books well published, but they haven't found their first readers or they're stumbling at that part. 
So this course is specifically designed, it's called Starting From Zero, and it's specifically designed to tackle that problem. So it's really going to help people with things like branding and packaging, and and then also just putting together first marketing campaigns, putting together that kind of reader capturing apparatus, like their mailing list, their website, their Facebook page, and then their first campaigns. And it, it, it doesn't cover things like ads, like uh, Facebook ads or book of ads. It's designed to get them to a point where their sales are rolling in, they're starting to get their mailing list moving, and they're starting to generate money that they can then reinvest in their business and reinvest in ads. Um, and it covers like... More, the cheaper places to get clicks, basically places like you know ENT and other reader sites like that. Um, how to run like a list builder promo? How to do a free run? How to do a ninety-nine cent deal? How to combine those for a launch? And just the ways to arrange a promotion that where you're working with the Amazon algorithms instead of against them. So I really hope it helps people find their feet. Um, it's going to be a totally free course. I think people have to sign up to access it, um, but there's no cost. There's no like bait and switch. It's not a lead into anything else. It's just there to help you. Yeah, that's great. I, I know with ads, people are like, well, you only have to start out spending $5 a day. But like, that's $150 a month. And when you're a new author, sometimes you're just trying to get enough to get a cover together. That's yeah, that's right. Still right. <laughs> and, and, and people sometimes make the wrong choice. They decide to invest in Facebook ads before they've nailed down their cover. And, you know, I think authors are in a rush a lot of the time to get, you know, into the charts or to, you know, they, I, I get approached by authors who haven't even published anything yet and they're asking me for advice on how to do a rapid release five book strategy. And I'm like, you know, I know authors who've been doing this for 10 years. Like, I would stumble on part of that. And I've been doing this for a while. You know, these are advanced strategies and people are. I think people are a little bit impatient and people are skipping too many steps. Like people still don't spend enough time, I think, on their covers, on their branding, on their descriptions, on, on their metadata, the real basics. And I have to keep drilling that into people. And they don't. They want to get to the, to, to the flashy stuff. They want to do the Facebook ads. They want to do you know, a giant uh, Kindle Unlimited campaign. But really the building blocks are so important because every year Facebook ads gets – and any ad platform gets a bit tougher. Clicks usually – are trending in one direction. They're usually getting more expensive. The platforms are usually getting more complex. So the margin, like it's not like it was five years ago where, you know, a kind of a half-assed ad with a graphic that you just threw together yourself can do reasonably well. Like um, one thing I've noticed on BookBook, for example, is the images have to be really good. Like the bar for that has raised a lot in the last year. On Facebook, like the whole campaign has to be pretty slick. You just have to have a lot of intention with how you're putting the parts together. And I think... A lot of people are falling down just in how they arrange the parts and just the basics of like an appealing package for readers. Yeah, that sounds like it'll be a really good resource. Uh, not Maybe not just for completely new authors, but for, you know, that sounds like good stuff to remember, even if you're a few books down the road. So we're going to ask you a couple of questions coming up on kind of the workings of Amazon. Because um, I quote you often on this show. I'm like, well, David Gogren said this at a conference, or he said this in this video, but um, people may be wondering how does david know these things where does your insight come from well i actually started working in the i was working in the tech industry i was working for google actually um because they forgot to make me sign an nda so i can totally spill all the secrets um but uh, i was working for google back in 2004 i think it was when i started working for them i think it was the start of 2004 and i was there at a very exciting time i was i was employee number 35 in the dublin office which is the head office for basically the rest of the world outside of america and um, I think by the time I left, I was only there for 18 months. And by the time I left, it had gone from 35 employees to several thousand. So the growth in that year and a half was crazy. So I kind of had a ringside seat to what was the biggest 
tech battle of the time, which was between Google and Yahoo. And this sounds like a bit of a diversion, but I promise you it's not. Because what a lot of people don't know is that Jeff Bezos was one of the earliest investors in Google. And so he had a ringside seat with this whole battle between Google and Yahoo. And when I was offered the job at Google, I was offered a job at Yahoo at the same time. And Yahoo were offering a good bit more money. And to the recruitment agent's great dismay, I took the Google job because just walking in the building, it felt like the future, whereas Yahoo didn't. It felt stagnant. And, and the big innovation that Google had over Yahoo was they didn't just let the person who bid the highest amount appear at the top of the search results. They made relevance a core part of that. It was like 50% of the bid was relevance and 50% was CPC. And that meant the ads got really relevant that people would actually want to click on the ads. They weren't just an annoyance or an interruption. They were things that people actually found value in. There was, there was genuinely good information in the ads. People wanted to click them. So Google realized that even though they would make less money in the short term by not just taking the highest bid price to appear at the top of the search results, that people would actually, you know, their trust in the ads would grow over time and they would actually like clicking on the ads. And Google reckon that was a good long-term bet. And Jeff Bezos was watching all this. And when he saw Google absolutely destroy Yahoo with this approach, um, he kind of enshrined that philosophy. He right, made it very central in Amazon, where we have um, a situation now where Amazon has this incredibly sophisticated e-commerce platform, which is essentially pairing products to customers constantly. It's always seeking to recommend you the product you're most likely to purchase, not the one that makes Amazon the most money, not the one where Amazon has too much of it in the warehouse. It's the one that you are most likely to purchase. And Amazon is always working to do that. And so in the world of books, that means that, you know, Amazon will be willing to recommend one of my books, even if it's only $2.99 or $3.99 over one of John Grisham's books, even though that's $14.99 or maybe $19.99. And Amazon would make much more money if someone bought John Grisham's book but they value user trust more. So they want to recommend someone the book that they're really going to enjoy the most. And that obviously has created a huge opportunity for us. All right. Now, even though Andrea is not here, uh, I'll be asking some questions on her behalf. And first question is, what led you to doing what you do now? What are the stories behind writing Let's Get Digital and Let's Get Visible? Um, it it kind of looks in retrospect like I had some kind of plan, but I honestly didn't. So I started, I started blogging... Um, right around the time I started self-publishing. And it was purely because there was very few resources out there. The, uh, the only resources at the time were, like there was Joe Conrath and there was a couple of people in romance. But I think they were generally people who had, were really quite experienced. They'd written, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 books. They'd often come from traditional publishing. They'd often already had an audience. Um, so uh, while the information was incredibly valuable and useful, it didn't always speak to everybody who was a total beginner and just starting out. And I think, you know, I was part of that kind of generation, if you like, of that first wave of self-publishers outside of the world of romance and erotica to, to start kind of figuring out all this stuff, like figuring out where you get an editor, you know, what your cover should look like, what your blurb should read like. And we're all figuring that out together. And I was just lucky that I started blogging about all this stuff right when everyone was looking for information. And my blog then became came kind of a, a community. Every blog post I wrote had a, a really, you know, a vibrant discussion in the comments. And we were all figuring this out together. We were all literally looking for cover designers at the same time. And I was rewriting the blog post based on everyone's experience. And by the end of that process, um, I think one of my readers asked me to compile it into a PDF so he could download it and print it out. And um, so he could just refer to it as he was going through the steps himself. 
So as I started compiling that book, I realized I was actually writing a book, so I better do it properly and start, you know, rewriting everything and writing a few transitions. And and the book just 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 came uh, completely by accident like that. And it, and it was an instant success just because there was a complete dearth of resources at the time. And I had a couple of breaks with on the promo side, and then it just took off from that. I never actually intended to write any nonfiction. It was never a plan of mine at all. Seems to be uh, doing pretty well for you these days, so that's good. Yeah, and and you know, every time I write a nonfiction book, I'm always like, okay, I'm going to go back to novels now, and I've, I've said everything I can. I'm, I'm not going to write any more books for writers. And then six months later, I'm halfway through three more books for writers. So I've, I've obviously got the bug at this point. Well, we're curious. Um, there's always a lot of misinformation going around on how sales ranking works on Amazon and how Kindle Unlimited borrows are factored in. Could you sum things up for us? Yeah, sure. This is actually one of the one of the first chapters in the new edition of Amazon Dakota because you know the your conception of sales rank is the basic building block of all of your knowledge of the algorithms of that power the Kindle store. And if you have a misconception of what sales rank actually is, and there's a lot of misconceptions going around, then that bleeds into everything else that you think about Amazon. And so you'll end up with this completely skewed view. It's like getting the foundation of a house wrong. So I can make this really, really simple. Sales rank is just sales. That's it. You know, there's all these theories out there that it's reviews or traffic to your page or, you know, I, I hear a new fanciful theory every few months, but it's not. It's just sales. And each borrow is counted as a sale. And the only thing that makes things look a bit complicated from the outside is that those sales decay over time. So there's a kind of a recency bias. Um, and just in very, very rough terms, a sale today will be worth about half a sale tomorrow and half again the next day. So it, it actually ages out pretty quickly. So, you know, if I sold a book today in a week's time, that'll count almost nothing towards my sales rank. It'll still count a little bit. That's why you'll see if you had a book that um, sold well at launch and then maybe just died, and then three years later, you'll see it only goes down to, I don't know, 600,000 in the rankings or something and doesn't drop any further. That's that little bit of historical sales counting towards your rank. But in general, it's just sales, sales plus time. And a borrow is worth exactly a sale. I think, you know, there's a, a lot of people seem to believe that a borrow is worth double or one and a half or three times the sale or something like that. And some of this confusion tends to arise from, well, firstly, Amazon glitches a lot. You know, just even just regular in regular working times, it glitches a lot. Right now, it's like prime day every day because there's so much traffic on Amazon, so many orders being processed that the servers are just creaking and you can see all sorts of stuff kind of all sorts of bugs cropping up but even normally amazon is famously glitchy so people will see you know delays in you know a sale affecting their sales rank and they'll they'll make miscalculations then or have a misconception on, of how it is calculated but it's really really simple um somebody buys your book within like one to three hours uh, usually the the end of that spectrum it will hit your kdp reports and then about an hour after that it will affect your rank we just did a show talking about pre-orders and there's a lot of folks that seem to think it's changed. Like it's not, you're not credited necessarily just when the order pre-order comes in, but you get a boost at launch. And I feel like those are people just getting KU borrows on launch day, but am I wrong? What are you guys seeing right now? Um, I think there's a couple of things mixed up there. And the the first is that, um, is the phenomenon of ghost borrows, like you said, right? Um, so this is this is why I believe that people thought a borrow was worth three times the sale. Um, in the first iteration of Kindle Unlimited, you might remember that we got paid a flat amount for every borrow. I think it was like a dollar forty something like that. Um, but they, we only got paid 
when someone reached 10% in the book, so when they were finished the free sample, basically. But we got the rank boost right away. So if you borrowed my book, Lindsay, I would see my rank jump in about four hours or so. But if you thought it was rubbish and ditched it after five pages, um, you know, I wouldn't get paid at all. So I would see the rank boost, but I wouldn't see anything in my dashboard. And it's a similar kind of thing now under the page read system in that somebody could borrow your book and it could sit in their Kindle for six months. So you'll see the rank boost and you won't see anything in the page reads. And Amazon doesn't tell us the borrow numbers anymore. So that's where the gap, you know, comes about. But in terms of pre-order specifically, this is where it gets really technical. So I'll try and just simplify it. Um, basically, what I think is going on in pre-orders is um, there's this thing called the popularity list on Amazon. And we probably don't want to go down that nerd hole because it's endless. But basically, the popularity list is the thing that drives recommendations to KU subscribers. And because KU subscribers, I believe, don't really want to be recommended pre-orders, they want books that are free to them, so in Kindle Unlimited, and they want books that are available now. So Amazon, and this is actually measurable, you can see this, Amazon actively suppresses pre-orders on the popularity list. And that's a, a mechanism that Amazon uses to make sure that the recommendations going out to a KU reader don't have too many pre-orders in them right? Um, and then what happens on launch day is Amazon basically just stops suppressing the book. So it pops up and it, it starts to jump up on the popularity list to where it should have been all along, right? So people see something that looks like a boost on launch day for their pre-orders. It looks like what happens on, um, isn't it Kobo and Apple where they double count the sale? You get a, you, you get a boost the, the moment it's ordered and you get a boost down on launch. So it looks kind of like that. And that's where I think some of the confusion arises, but I don't think that's what's happening. I think the suppression that Amazon puts on the pre-order is lifted and then it just rises to its natural place. That makes a lot of sense. It, like I was, I'm glad that it sort of had a logic behind it as opposed to a, we're not really sure what happens. Yeah, um, it, it took a bit of figuring out. I think it was Ed Robertson that actually figured it out and he's far smarter than me. He had, he, he reckons it goes by some kind of parabolic curve and all the stuff that got way too complicated for me. I only need the basics and then I can, you know, know how to tweak my marketing based on that. I don't need the actual formula. But yeah, yeah. I think he was the one that figured it out. All right. Uh, this is another question from Andrea. What are mistakes you see authors making that hurt their successes when it comes to selling on Amazon? Well, in terms of basic ones, um, I you know, the, the metadata issue is a big one. Um, like, we all know that the importance of keywords and categories and, you know, drilling down. I think, you know, sometimes people aren't aware of the latest best practices. Like, so for example, Amazon finally made it explicit about categories, thankfully, that you're allowed to have up to 10 on each book. And they've actually simplified the process a lot. Um, I think, you know, we're all aware of the, the keyword categories where, you know, you use certain keywords and that would get you into a category. Um, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that Amazon is about to axe that system. And um, you see a few signs that it's going to disappear, like all the KDP help pages around keyword categories are being slowly pulled down and amended. And they've now actually simplified the process for getting in the categories you want. Um, and what you can do is you can just contact Author Central or KDP support, and you give them the full list of categories you want for each book. And they will just add them to your book up to a, a maximum of 10. And I believe that 10 includes both 
book and Kindle categories. Now, I've seen some books pop out with more than 10 after this process, but I'd recommend keeping it at 10 because that's what you're officially allowed. And you don't want Amazon coming along and stripping out what is your you know number one category, your most important category. So keep it to 10 and just email them the full category path for each category you want. And you have to do that for each international store. And I think this is where even big sellers can miss a trick. Um, the Kindle store is broken down quite differently in Australia and Canada, UK. So when you add these categories to your book, you're only getting, you're only adding them for the US store. You have to specifically tell them, you know, for .com, I want this category path. For .co.uk, I want this category path. And you'll see your visibility footprint expand hugely in the other stores in Canada, Australia, and UK. And I really recommend doing that as well. Uh, out of curiosity, like, is there a, a way that we can find out what categories are available? Like, are they listed off in a simple way? Because I know for a long time, I was unaware of subcategories that I could have absolutely used. Yeah, so um, there's a couple of ways. The easiest way is just to type in your ASIN into Amazon and search, do a Kindle store search um, and type in your ASIN. But that doesn't work for all books. It's a bit, it's a bit broke. And I asked Amazon directly, is there an official way because, you know, they used to put the categories on the page and that was great for seeing both your own categories and also for stalking other authors to see what categories they were using. But that's gone there. So the only thing you can do is put in, put in the ASIN. Um, we, we can put a link in the show notes to, it's actually, it's not something you can do on Amazon, but it's a, I think it's backlink.com or something like that. It's spelled a bit funny though. So I'll give you the link to put in the show notes. Um, and there is a, there is a little ASIN finder. You can just put in your ASIN and it will give you all the categories you're listing. And here's the thing, people can end up in categories they aren't even where they were in because they're using one of these keyword triggers inadvertently and they end up in a subcategory they actually don't want to be in. So, you know, it's also good not to be in, it's also good to remove categories that are irrelevant for your book. You don't want to be visible to the wrong readers on Amazon because one thing that Amazon really values all the time, and it, it goes through everything on Amazon, is relevance. So when Amazon recommends your book to a bunch of customers, it doesn't stop working then. You know, it's also looking at the result of that recommendation. It also wants to see, you know, how did this guy convert when I showed that book to that bunch of readers? And if it sees bad conversion in, in its recommendations, it will recommend your book less. If it sees stellar conversion, it'll recommend your book more. So that's why it's, it's never good to use any of these gimmicks. You know, I see some people, um, it was a thing that scammers started doing, but then regular authors started copying it where they're putting their book in something like fairy tales because it only takes a handful of sales to hit the chart there or to rank number one and they get their orange bestseller sash and then they turn on their AMS ads. And I think that's a big mistake. You know, you have to remember that scammers are operating on a totally different business model. They're not interested in building a sustainable readership. They're all about getting as much money as possible today because they don't know when that, when that, when the ban hammer is going to drop. So they've got to maximize their payouts every month because, you know, one day Amazon could just come out, come along and boot them out of the store. So you, you do not want to take that approach. You don't want to hoodwink any readers. Um, you definitely want excellent conversion when Amazon recommends your book to readers. And if you put your book in the wrong category, Amazon will start recommending your book to people who re really do buy fairy tales or Amazon will see the conversion rates terrible from people browsing the charts. You know, like relevancy goes through everything Amazon does. So, you know, I think it's good. I, I, I think people should like think about relevancy all the time. Think about it when they're writing their story. Think about it when they're getting their cover design, when they're picking their keywords, when they're putting their book into certain categories, when they're picking the title for their book, when they're writing their bio. It should go through everything. And then your marketing as well, your Facebook ads, your book club ads. You should always be aiming at core readers in your genre. And everything should be as holistic as possible, singing from the same hymn sheet. And I think that's the real X factor. When you look at the 
authors in you know the big authors in your genre and that's the x factor it's they're, they're doing everything well and everything is 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 in harmony you know it's not just that they've got a really great book cover a really great branding everything is in harmony everything is pointing at the same ideal reader if you like uh, that's an excellent point. And um, I appreciate the tip, too, on reminding us to do it for the international stores, because I haven't been doing that. Are you just asking through Author Central, or do yeah, you have you, to like ask through the UK Author Central for those? No, you can, you can do it all through US Author Central. You can actually, it, it, you know, I prefer going through Author Central whenever possible, because I think the customer service is much better. And they have like a callback feature, or you can call them. And same with KDP. So like, sometimes... You know, when Amazon changes the policy, sometimes that takes a while to filter down to the frontline staff or they just misinterpret it. So every so often you might run into somebody saying, oh, you can't have more than two categories on your book, which is the old guidance. So if you run into a, a roadblock via Author Central, just do it via KDP and you'll be fine. So it's good to have both. Um, but it doesn't really matter. And you can do all of them in one monster email. I know someone who did like all 40 of her books in all international stores. She just sent this like, you know, 5,000 word email or something. I got everything done in one go. So you can do that. Uh, you can do it on the phone, but then you're reading out your categories and stuff. Um, so that can be a bit tricky, but it will get done pretty much instantly. Although it does take a couple of days to actually take effect and populate throughout this one. All right. Good tip for everyone and for myself. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you didn't want to go too far down the popularity list rabbit hole, but I do have one question for you just um, for clarification. Uh, you mentioned the recommendation engine. Could you just tell people, because I know you just did a video on YouTube talking about how you want more KU borrows, you got to sell more books and do better on the popularity list. Um, could you explain that for our listeners? Yeah, and I think, you know, some people might violently disagree with this, and that's fine. I'm I'm floating this hypothesis, if you like, and I'll be interested to see what people think about it, whether they've tried it. And, but I, I feel pretty, pretty good about this idea. And basically, um, it, it, this all comes about from, basically, anytime I stand up and speak to an audience of writers, or anytime I write a blog post, or record a video, or do a podcast, um, people always have one question, especially authors in Kindle Unlimited. They want to know, how do you target Kindle Unlimited um, readers? Because it's not a targeting option on book ads or Facebook ads or even AMS. It's not even a targeting option for the AMG promos, those big um, $40,000 know, uh, VIP level AMS promos. You can't even do it there. Um, it's simply not possible. The only people who know who is a KU subscriber or not, are Amazon. So I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I was like, okay, how do we design promotions? How do we design marketing campaigns, launches, backlist promos that really target Kindle Unlimited readers? And it finally came to me, and it sounds like a bit of a bait and switch, but I promise you it's not. What you need to do is not target them. It's not possible to do it. You can't do it. You need to do it in a very roundabout way. And I started thinking about it, and it was, it was Phoenix Sullivan, actually, who discovered that the popularity list is the main driver of recommendations to KU readers. And when we started examining the popularity list, we started to see a few interesting things. First, the accounts free freebies. It doesn't have a separate you know, top 100 paid and top 100 free like you'll see in the regular categories or the regular bestseller lists. Um, it's broken down to the same 13,000 categories and subcategories as the rest of the Kindle store. But it doesn't count borrows, which is weird. It does count freebies. It has price weighting, which means if you sell a nine ninety nine book, that'll be worth more on the popularity list than a ninety nine cent book. 
Um, so it has all these really weird, interesting quirks, and you have to kind of um, get to know those and redesign your campaigns a little bit to take advantage of those um, if you're in Kindle Unlimited in particular. And this is why, by the way, free became kind of gold again under Kindle Unlimited, because if you do, like I did a book book promotion the other day, got something like 37,000 downloads, and I wasn't in Kindle Unlimited, but if that book was in Kindle Unlimited, it would have seen it jump up the popularity list and you know trigger a wave of page reads. I think anybody, you know, it's trickier getting a book book when you're in Kindle Unlimited, but anyone that does it, they see a massive um, wave of page reads coming in. And this is why, because all those free downloads improve your position on the popularity list, and then your book starts getting recommended to lots of KU readers. Um, but yeah, so one of the one of the big quirks of the of the popularity list is that it doesn't count borrows, and yet it is the main source of recommendations to KU readers. So if I want to maximize my position on the popularity list, I need to find people who aren't KU subscribers. What I actually need there are sales, not borrows, because they're not going to get counted. So all these people who are trying desperately to target Kindle and limited readers. I'm suggesting they need to stop and they need to target buyers. They need to target purchasers. And where this actually makes a difference on, uh, on the actual cold face and in the practical sense when you're designing your ads, I see people doing things like um, doing an ad on BookBub ads or Facebook ads and they use something like free in Kindle Unlimited. You know, and they, they don't actually have an offer aside from that. Like their book is $3.99 or $4.99. It's not, you know, it's not on sale. It's not a freebie. And they're, what they're leading with their offer in the ad is free in Kindle Unlimited. So the only people they will attract are borrowers. You know, the only, the only people who will click on that really are going to be Kindle Unlimited subscribers. And this is actually the opposite of what you need to be doing. You need to be attracting sales. So I prefer not taking that approach and just leading with discounts, leading with freebies, and a mix of those, especially when you're pushing a series, um, doing a mix of those at the same time and then just, just trying to maximize position on the popularity list and using that, using buyers as a springboard to go and grab the borrows. All right. Um, like, and sort of branching off of that, like Amazon is the biggest marketplace. Uh, and a popular interpretation is that KU is the second biggest marketplace. Like you can almost treat it as a separate thing, even though they're obviously linked. And as a result, uh, and with KU's influence on, on ranking and all that, uh, it, exclusivity becomes an essential part of a lot of marketing tactics on Amazon. And are there like, are there ways that a person who is wide can still make an impact uh, marketing on Amazon? Like, like what tactics still work? Yeah. Well, I think you've got to recognize right from the start that you're not going to win in a straight fight with a KU author, right? Because not only are they getting the added cream of borrows. And I think, you know, when, when Kindle Nimbus started, there was a big conversation about whether it cannibalizes sales. And I think it does, but it cannibalizes sales of wide authors more than your own books, right? Because I actually bought a new Kindle, I think it was last Christmas, and it came bundled with like three months of free Kindle Unlimited. And as soon as I took that out of the box and activated it, the Kindle store changed in front of my eyes. Buy buttons disappeared. They changed into read now buttons. And to actually buy a book that was in Kindle Unlimited, I actually had to hunt around, click a drop down, and actually select, I want to buy this book. And when I went to cancel Kindle Unlimited then three months later, Amazon said, oh, you have to return those books you've borrowed before you can cancel it. And I didn't even know I'd borrow them. You know, and I, I kind of should know what I'm doing, but apparently I don't. But so you can imagine the average customer, you know, making that mistake all the time. And Amazon really does push them towards borrowing books, even when they want to buy them. But also the recommendations change. And I think we do have to consider it a separate 
store a separate ecosystem because Kindle Unlimited readers are just getting a different set of recommendations. And I think we frame this conversation all wrong as authors because we're looking at it from our perspective. We're like, Amazon is doing something to favor the Kindle Unlimited books. Amazon's putting its fingers on the scale. Uh, And I actually think we should look at it the other way. Amazon is reflecting what readers want. And if you are, you know, a retired person in the Midwest who goes through three or four books a week and you're already paying $10 a month for your Kindle Unlimited subscription, what kind of books do you want to be recommended? Do you want to be recommended to, you know, this, from this catalog of one million books, some of which are really excellent, well-reviewed, well-presented books in all imaginable genres? Or do you want to, pay, what, do you want to be recommended books which cost $4.99 or $14.99? You know, the answer is pretty obvious. So I think Amazon is just serving the reader. Now, of course, they have created this whole situation. You know, But I think we should look at it from the reader perspective, that a reader wants to be recommended, a KU reader wants to be recommended books they can borrow for free and they can get now. Do you think AMS advertising is, I mean, I know you can still make it work if you're not in KU, but are you really at a disadvantage? Are people clicking those ads thinking I'm going to be able to borrow it? Because it doesn't tell in the carousel. It just gives the price. Um, any thoughts for AMS if you're wide? But the, the paradoxical thing about AMS, in my opinion, is that it is the least price-sensitive ad platform, and nobody would have guessed that, you know, a few years ago. I think, you know, obviously, BookBub is the most price-sensitive in that, you know, you're really going to struggle if you don't have a 99-cent book or a free deal. You can make higher prices work, but that takes a bit of skill and practice with the platform, and even then, it's hit and miss. Um, Facebook is somewhere in the middle, you know, um, deals work really well there, but also you can get full price books to work, especially if you're targeting um, an interest, which is a traditionally published author, then, you know, $4.99 looks like a sale anyway. Um, Weirdly, Amazon, you can really make full price books work, or at least the the difference between pushing a a deal and a full price book isn't as big as the other platforms. And so that's one thing I think people need to realize right from the start. And I I think the biggest difference maker with AMS ads isn't necessarily that you're in Kindle Unlimited or not. It's probably the length of your series and how much read-through you have. I think that's what makes them profitable for you and how much you can finesse the targeting. But honestly, AMS is not my strong point. I'm much more comfortable with Facebook and and BookBub ads. I always feel like with AMS that it's always like a one-night stand. I never get anywhere further. Like, it doesn't matter, you know, how much money I spend. I can always get to a certain level of success. And as if there's like a glass ceiling there or something, I just can't break through. See, I think I like AMS because I don't have to do graphics. I don't have to come up with clever copy like on Facebook. So uh, I think probably a lot of lazy authors like me or less skilled copywriters are maybe defaulting to that. It's probably why it's gotten so competitive. Yeah, well, I think it's the easiest one to reach a, to reach a certain level of skill. Like, I think, you know, it's, it's, the, it's got the easiest learning curve for the first phase where you're just getting, you know, a trickle of sales coming in. And I think that's why people like it as well as, you know, not having to do graphics and all that stuff. But then I think getting from that up to, like, expert level, I think it's one of the harder leaps out of all the platforms. And that's, that's where I'm still personally. Yeah, like, uh, they, they'll take my money, but they want me to pay 90 cents a click. You know, that's that's hard to make work unless you've got a 10 or 20 book series. Yeah, and I think I think uh, Joseph was asking about, you know, what, what can white authors do? And I was saying, um, you know, you, you can't get into a firefight with a KU author. And, and that's very true on AMS, but it's also true on, on BookBub and Facebook as well. Because, you know, they're getting the cream of borrows. They're also getting 70% when they're running a countdown deal. So, you know, you're trying to especially in BookBub, there's one slot that you, you know, you're all fighting over in, in the daily email. Like, it's not like Facebook where someone can have four or five ads in their feed or Amazon where there could be a hundred ad slots on a page. Um, 
and you know you're not going to outbid you're not going to outgun someone in a straight auction so i think what wide authors can do uh, just to actually answer joe's question from a while back before i went on a tangent what wide authors can actually do um, is look at the look at where people aren't spending money Look at where the Kindle Unlimited authors aren't spending money, you know, because when you're a wide author, visibility on Amazon is less important to you. Um, it's always nice to have, but it's less valuable because it's not turning into borrows and page read income and all that stuff as well. And when you're a wide author, it doesn't really matter where a sale comes from. It doesn't matter if it's a Kobo South Africa or, you know, Apple UK or Amazon Canada. It doesn't really matter. It's all money in the bank, right? Um, so you got to, you know, you got to seek out cheaper clicks. Now, we all know clicks are cheaper in on Apple and Kobo and everywhere else if you're doing BookBub or Facebook. But even on Amazon itself, right, I find, and I'm, I'm a wide author, by the way, um, I find a lot of um, opportunity in places like Amazon Canada, Amazon Australia. Like, I'm, I'm growing those markets a fair bit now because what I tend to find is a KU author will lean very heavily on countdown deals. And countdown deals are only running in the US and the UK. So when they're running like a big, like you see some guys doing like nine books at 99 cents and they're all countdown deals, they can't run that promo in, in Canada and Australia. So that's leaving a lot of the market for wide authors to still grab Amazon money, but not necessarily in the US. And I find, you know, readers are, especially in Australia, books are expensive in Australia. So if you can get an ad cooking in Australia, you can get some really cheap clicks, really high CTR, great response. And it's all money. It's all coming in in your Amazon check anyway. So, you know, I, I, do, I do tend to spend disproportionately more and when I'm running a wide campaign, not just on outside Amazon, because uh, that can be tricky as well. They don't convert. You know, you send a reader to Kobo or Apple, they don't convert as well as Amazon. But if I send a reader to Amazon Canada or Amazon Australia, they'll convert really well. So I like doing that a lot. Yeah, it's it's kind of silly that I focus so much on Amazon.com when actually just from being having permafreeze and having been out there a long time, you know, a, a lot, be, I wouldn't say 50%, but just getting there is from all the other Amazon stores, Kobo, Apple, and those stores. So it's worth focusing on those for sure. Yeah, I think I think there is a fair opportunity there. Um, you know, and like for for white authors especially, like you don't just want to abdicate the Amazon market completely to all the KU people. You you definitely want to keep your foot in that door. So you know that that's the way you can do it because it, it, for some reason KU authors are reluctant to do free runs. I think I don't think um, I think most people prefer doing countdown deals. So you know there will be a lot of them who are just leaving the 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 Canada and Australian market to wide authors. So there is an opportunity there for sure. All right. Excellent. Um, one last question for me on the Amazon stuff. I I'm noticed the last few months, um, for me anyway, and I know they experiment a lot, but with the also bots, it's been kind of pushed down to the bottom of the page and there's been books you might like, and then the ads carousel. Have you been watching that? Do you have any thoughts on, do we need to be concerned or is it just going to be the same? Well, I, I wish Amazon would stop messing with it so I can publish this book on how Amazon works because they, they keep changing this and it's something that people are, you know, will freak out about, quite honestly. Um, and I think people need to not freak out. So the first thing I would say is Amazon have been messing with that slot for as long as I can remember. As long as I've been looking at Ultabots, so since 2011, 2012, Amazon have been messing with that slot. And while authors are, I think, you know, authors are just learning more about also boss in the last few years and how important they are. So they're paying more attention to them and they're only just starting to notice now how much Amazon messes with it. And I don't think it has changed that much 
the speed with, or the amount that Amazon messes with this. Just people are noticing it more. Um, and what's really important here is not the also bots themselves. It's the underlying recommendation engine. So even if you know the worst were to happen, and Amazon were to take away also bots from our pages forever, it wouldn't affect things that much because they're just a visual representation of what's going on under the surface or under the hood with Amazon anyway. So it's not like Amazon's going to stop recommending your book. It's not like Amazon's going to stop emailing your book to readers or recommending it on site. That's just a representation. And it's just a, basically, I use it like a diagnostic tool. If I see my also bots are scrambled, you know, I write historical fiction. If I start to see my writer books pop in there or, you know, science fiction or thrillers or something outside of my genre, I know something has gone wrong with my marketing. I'm, I'm you know, sending the wrong type of people to my Amazon page. So that's, that's what I primarily use it for. Um, so don't panic if they do disappear. I don't think they will. Amazon have tried maybe 10 different things in that slot now and nothing ever sticks. Um, and I think, you know, th we almost had, we saw the worst possible version, which was two rows of AMS ads, which was just appalling. Um, but thankfully, that one didn't stick either. So I, I think this books to read thing is pretty lame. It's like, um, it's, it's basically influenced, it seems to be influenced by what you view on Amazon more than anything else. So it's actually worse than Altabots. It's more like also views, but they're personal to you rather than, you know, Altabots are an aggregate of what everybody in the store is doing, where these are a bit more personal to you. And I find the, the, the recommendation algorithms that are related to what you view on Amazon are generally the weakest. So sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes you'll get emails from Amazon, which are just based on what you've viewed. And they're, for me anyway, they're the lowest quality ones. And I bet they drive the least sales on Amazon. So I really don't see this stick. All right. Now I got one more question on this topic as well. And, and, uh, this is one that I am very selfishly interested in. In fact, when we were hanging out after an ink last year, I asked this in person, but, uh, let's say you have a long running series that's, that's about to close up or has closed up. Uh, is it possible to take a formally successful series and drag it back to the point of profitability or will a long period of poor sales sort of make it a, a, a lead weight? No, I think, um, you know, the, the only place that might be a concern um, is with AMS ads because, you know, they, they, they seem to look at sales history a lot. And, you know, but outside of that, um, I wouldn't be concerned at all. Like you can take a series or a book that hasn't been selling well and you could change its fortunes overnight. Like I don't think Amazon will see poor performance and just permanently kind of give you a scarlet letter on that book or something. I don't think that happens. I've seen like we there's a book now at the top of the thriller charts. I don't know who it is or how he's doing it. It's a guy called Christopher Grayson. I think it's a psychological thriller. And it's been in the top like it's at the top of the thriller charts for six months or several months anyway. And uh, it was released. I was, I was trying to I was just doing a bit of lurking, trying to figure out, you know, what what this guy had done to get the book up there. And um I saw it being released in 2017 or something. And I don't remember it being a success back then. So you really can have a stained run at the top of the charts, even if your previous sales history wasn't all that. I think, you know, there's a lot of examples of people who have written a series that didn't take off until book three, four, five, even book six, you know, and even though sales were terrible to begin with on that series, then it really took off. So I think Amazon is always willing to revise its opinion of your book, if you want to put it that way. That's encouraging for people who maybe don't have the best launch that they uh, were hoping for or didn't have a lot of money to put into ads and such when they started. Um, so kind of swinging into launches and promos a little bit, 
we've discussed before how like when you do a launch, especially on Amazon, but probably on all the stores, you don't want to just have all the sales come in on one day. You want to hopefully stagger it a little bit. So, you know, you've got hopefully your newsletter, your social media, and then maybe some sponsored ad posts or newsletter swaps going on. Is there anything else people are doing that it to successfully keep it at a high enough level for a week or two to hopefully gain some momentum and keep selling on its own? Well, I think, you know, it's it's mostly about rearranging the arranging the pieces in the right way. I think a lot of people, especially experienced authors, they might have all the pieces in place like you know, um, they, they have the books, they have the branding, they have their metadata, all that locked down, um, and they're just driving traffic to their books page in different ways. And I think they get the basics that you need to spread the love and not just have everything concentrated on one or two days. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of... The, the devil really is in the details with this stuff. And this is one thing that I spent a huge amount of time on in the, in the latest edition of Amazon Decoded. You know, rather than just talking in a conceptual way about the algorithms and about how the different parts of the store work and about how you can get more visibility for your books, there's a whole section at the end which is all plans and strategies. You know, like um, just different approaches to take, whether you're launching a new book, you know, trying to revive a book which hasn't sold, or trying to revive a series which historically hasn't sold well. Like, how, how can you jumpstart it when you want to be really aggressive? And it's just what people need to do is just gain a deeper understanding of how Amazon works and then try and directly apply it to their campaigns. And, you know, the, the thing about this is it's really hard to get right. I probably, you know, looking back, I would say less than a quarter of the time I have absolutely nailed a promotion or a launch in an algorithmic sense where Amazon has actually really taken over and started selling the book for me. And I've stood back hands off, haven't spent a penny. And Amazon has just sell, sold the hell out of that book for two or three months. You know, that's only happened a handful of times to me. Um, but the thing about this is, even if you only get half right, the benefits are huge, right? So even if, you know, you know, in a, in a, in a theoretical sense, in an ideal world, you might like to have, you know, 300 sales on day one, 320 on day two, 340 on day three, and just stepping it up a little bit every day for five days or six days or seven days. And then hopefully, you know, Amazon will take over. But even if you do it perfect, sometimes there can be glitches. Sometimes the popularity list can freeze. Sometimes Amazon is supposed to email your book to millions of people, but, you know, the server is getting slammed because it's Prime Day and it doesn't happen. And when, you know, when you're talking about launches or promotions that are, you know, aimed to generate millions and millions of page reads, you're talking about things that have many moving parts. And, you know, authors these days, they'll have list swaps, they'll have their mailing list, they'll have Facebook ads, book ads, all sorts of things going on all the time. So our launches have become, like, I, I think back to some of my launches in 2011, 2012, and it's hilarious, like, just how complicated the launches have become. So obviously when there's more parts, there's more things that can go wrong. So I would say just don't freak out when something goes wrong, because even if you, as I said, even if you only kind of half nail it, like let's say one day you have 350 sales, and then the next day it drops to 185, and then the next day it's 400, so your launch is a bit wonky. Yes, maybe Amazon won't come in and take over and sell your book, sell the hell out of your book for three months. But maybe it'll sell it, it'll push it really hard for two or three weeks, and then it'll drop down a level, and it'll push it reasonably hard for a couple of weeks, and then it'll drop down another little level again, and it'll still push it a little bit. And then by the time that is done, you might have another book coming out anyway, or you might be running a sale, or you might have another pro, bit of promo going. So I think um, this is something that is good to aim for, but not something where you need to get it completely right or it won't work at all. 
It does also seem that even if you do two equally well and or equally poorly <laughs> and spend the same amount, one might one book might be closer to like maybe the market or what the readers want, and that one could take off maybe even with less effort. And then if the other one is like a little more niche, uh, it just seems to be my experience that like no matter what you do, it's going to be hard to get keep it selling beyond after your core readers pick it up. Yeah, and sometimes you only get a clear view of that afterwards, right? Like you can be, you can be working on something, and you go, right? I'm totally riding to market now. Have it nailed on. I might be selling out a little bit, but this is going to do really well. And then you launch it, and you realize, well, it was actually a bit different. I was trying to subvert those tropes, and maybe, maybe that didn't land the plane. And you know, that's just something. That's just something that comes with experience, and and you know, it's just it, it's hard to know that stuff in advance. Um, but you know that's that's the good thing about you know sticking around and having experience and just just keep trying new things um like some people i know started off in mysteries and thrillers and did reasonably well but could never really get beyond a certain point and then they tried writing romance or something and things just took off and sometimes you know you've just got to keep plugging away and and until something actually breaks it's funny how like this happens a lot with musicians that i've noticed where you uh you you hear you watch a thing where they talk about what they listen to and it's not what they play. And it just ha so happens that what comes out of them creatively is not actually their taste. And so I think it probably happens a lot with authors too, where it'll be like, well, this is the kind of story I read. I want to write a book like this, but it turns out they have a tremendous aptitude for something else. They just haven't tried it yet. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's, it's what happens a lot in, in, in our, in our world is that I think sometimes people adopt a pen name for an experiment. You know, they want to try moving into a new genre or maybe they want to write some, something a bit racier and separate it from their existing audience or whatever. And I think just the very act of adopting a new identity sometimes frees people from maybe the, some of the baggage they have in their own head or they just try, they just, they're just a bit more experimental and they just, uh, and something just different comes out of them that the market really resonates or responds to. All right. Now, um, we talked a little bit about rapid release earlier, and rapid release is still a very popular tactic to help a series succeed. Do you feel like rapid release is still worthwhile? It is absolutely worthwhile. Like in, in, in algorithmic terms, there's nothing like feeding Amazon new books all the time. And I think we all know that a book gets a lot of extra visibility in those first 30 days, not just from the hot new releases list, but you know, Amazon will be recommending new books to readers in various ways around the site and in emails to readers. And then of course, there's all the stuff you're doing, you know, all the traffic you're sending to your books page and all the word of mouth that you're jump starting with all your promotional efforts. So that first month, your book is, is getting a lot of, um, a lot of attention that it mightn't get in month two or three or four. So, you know, if you are in a position where you can release a book every month, even if it's just for a three month period, you know, where I, you know, maybe you're starting a new pen name or maybe you're starting a new series and you decide to bank the books and then release them one after the other, you know, that is, that is optimal for the algorithms. I've seen people speculating whether, you know, a book a week, I've seen people try that and I haven't seen the upside really, or a book every two weeks. I think a book a month, if you're doing that approach is probably the optimal. Having said that, executing it well is difficult. Like it's hard enough to do um, an algorithmically perfect launch, if you like, um, with just one book, but then doing repeating that every 30 days is a tall order. But again, even if you only get it half right, the benefits can be huge. All right, now Andrea has a question here. Uh, how should promotions on backlist play into an author's marketing strategy? How much time should authors devote to a backlist versus new releases? And where should they be putting their advertising money? 
Well, a lot of this will be individual for an author. Like if you're releasing regularly, like if you're releasing every two or three months or even more regularly than that, you won't have a huge amount of time probably for backlist promotions which aren't connected to a launch in some way. Or at least that's that's the way I roll anyway. So if I'm launching a book, I you know, I will look for something else in the series that I can push at the same time. If I'm in if I'm doing a Kindle Unlimited campaign, I'm gonna be doing aggressive price cuts across the series. I might be doing a free book one and then a ninety nine cent book two, a one ninety nine book three, and so on. But if I am doing a pure backlist promotion, like let's say there is a gap for whatever reason, let's say I have four or five, six months between releases and I'm just doing a backlist promo, or maybe there's a totally separate series or stuff under a separate name. Um, then I think you can be more aggressive, especially if the series is closed off, especially if it's a series like we talked about where the sales have gone down quite a bit and there's, it, that, that organically is not going to come back. So you really have to um, jumpstart that and be a bit more aggressive. Then, especially if you're in KU, you can do really aggressive price promotions on that. And that's where you see people doing those crazy kind of promotions where they do a whole six-book or nine-book series all at 99 cents, which, which sounds like you're giving away the farm. But I've actually run a promotion like that where it was, it was a series where it had drifted out of the charts. It wasn't going to come back on its own. And it was basically like, you know, we can do anything with this now, so let's, let's be really aggressive. So we did all nine books for 99 cents. And I think it sold, the series sold several thousand copies in the weekend. So, you know, something like that can really, really get things moving again. All right. We wanted to wrap up with a couple questions about platform building. Uh, you just put like just as I we're recording on Monday and I think on Friday you send out to the newsletter the followers following. The following, yeah, yeah. What are you advising for platform building right now in 2020? Yeah, re- yeah. Really, really strip back um, because you know the, this this book actually I should point out it's it's mostly aimed at less experienced authors, but anyone who has you know, even if they're more experienced and they haven't really grappled with the idea of platform or they're not doing it in a systematic way, we'll get something out. But I, I recommend a really paired back approach of just website, mailing list, and Facebook page and really working those and nailing those down and, and spending years perfecting those before adding anything else to it. Unless, you know, you write in a very specific demographic, like, I don't know, contemporary romance or new adult or something, and you feel really, really strongly that you have to be on Instagram. Fair enough. You can you can bolt that on to the setup that I recommend and use the same principles of content marketing that I talk about to engage your audience. And I think, you know, most people know that um, a mailing list is super important. Um, most people know that a website is, is super important, but mostly because that's where people sign up to your mailing list, right? Even if that was the only page in your website, it would still be doing a good job. Um, but when it comes to Facebook, I think people can approach this in the wrong way. And I think we can fall into a trap of harvesting easy likes, if you like. So, you know, we can, you know, and I've just, I just split myself into a, into a couple of different names and I had to start a brand new Facebook page for my historical fiction name in January. So I've just grown a Facebook page just w- without really spending anything on it. It's grown to over 2000 likes in the space of six months. And that's without, you know, a new release or anything or spending a lot of money. And I've just done that with content marketing. And this is where you've got to put your reader hat on, like you do with email if you're one of those people um, who emails your audience regularly, and I think you should be doing that. Um, You've got to put your reader hat on and think about the kind of content that you, as a fan of the genre, like to engage in and like to consume. So on my historical fiction page, 
I have things like, um, I do these kind of like on this day kind of posts, like, you know, today is the birthday of the inventor of the guillotine. You know, that gives me an opportunity to talk about some of the things that went on in revolutionary France. And that is, you know, tangential to the, to the world that some of my books are set in. Um, I do little things from set American history. I do reviews of my favorite books. And it's basically like, like fan service. And then occasionally I will talk about my books and occasionally I will link it more directly to, to, to something where I've said a book. And then, of course, I will mention when I have a free run or a sale or I'll drive people to, to, to sign up to my list via that as well. But I think it's a very slow start. And it's frustrating at the start to be putting time into creating this content and then putting it out on Facebook and getting like one like, right? And then you're like, why did I spend two hours doing this when I could have written a chapter of a book? And then you put up a picture of a puppy and it gets 100 likes and then 25 shares. And you're like, ah, I must be onto something here. More puppies are needed. The problem is you start building an audience of people that like puppies instead of people that like weird historical stories set in Latin America. And that's what I want to be. I want to build that audience. I don't want to build a puppy audience. So I think people need to be very careful about sharing memes and sharing cute pictures of their kids or their dog or whatever. I think that stuff has a place. Um, but probably Facebook is not that place. You know, you can use that to build a connection on your mailing list if you want to. Um, but when it comes to Facebook, I think you need to be, and this comes back to relevancy again and being targeted with everything that you do. Like you should be targeted at your Facebook page as well. You should post things to your Facebook page that only, you know, genre geeks will, will enjoy. Only the people that are extreme lovers of your niche will enjoy. And if everyone else hates it, good, it's done its job. You only, you only want stuff that people will get excited by who really, really love your genre. And it is a slower build doing it that way, but it's, it's a, it's a much better way to do it. Um, like people always complain that what's the point of building an audience on Facebook? Cause now you have to pay to reach and they're right to an extent. Um, but you have to understand that this isn't just about Facebook wanting to make money. Of course they do, but they can't physically put everything into people's feeds that they have liked. So if you think about, you know, the average person, I don't know how many pages they've liked or how many friends they have, but there's no way that Facebook could fit every single update from every single page and every single friend into their feed. So they have to prioritize it somehow. So they do it in two ways. One is obviously they have to keep the lights on. So they will prioritize ad content a little bit, but they also look at what you personally are interested in. What are you engaging in? What do you like? What do you comment? What do you share? And that's what they will. So if you have a friend who you interact with more on Facebook, they will show you more of their content on Facebook. And it's just the same with a page. Like I've, I've heard people say that organic reach now is only 1% for pages. It's not. If you stick, if you keep a narrow beam of focus with your content and keep it really, really focused on the reason why people are liking your page in the first place, then you could see organic reach of, I see organic reach of up to 40% on both of my pages sometimes. I don't get that with every post, but I regularly get 20%, which people say is impossible without spending money. So these are the benefits and the benefits you can get without even spending a penny just by being very, very focused with the content that you put out. And you're doing this already you know, with your mailing list. So what I actually do is I, all the offcuts that aren't, you know, good enough for mailing list content or aren't, you know, deep enough or long enough. I just, you know, they're just a couple of paragraphs long, maybe a photo. It doesn't take me long to put together. And I throw them out on Facebook usually every few days or so. And that's slowly building up an audience for me and engaging people. And then I shuffle them on to somewhere more important where I'm really building my platform, which is like, I, I try and move them to my website. I try and get them onto my mailing list and obviously to buy my books as well. Yeah, those numbers are pretty in line with what I get. I think I've got like nine or 10,000 followers uh, and then 2,000 views is really common and sometimes three or 4,000 
but then if it goes beyond that, I know it's because it got shared around, you know, like my dragon toilet paper holder story is like my most viral post ever. And those are my people, the people yeah, that my dragon the, the, toilet paper holders. <laughs> those are really, really good numbers. So you're obviously doing this the right way. And I think, you know, authors need to, um, they just need to be a bit more focused and just I, like, I understand what it's like. Like, even though I know all this, right. When I was starting my new Facebook page and I was putting out those first bit of content and, you know, making nice little graphics and writing the stories and, and, and you do have to write it as a story. Like I think it was, it was Ernie Dempsey that said to me like, that we, we forget we're storytellers sometimes when we're marketing. And that, you know, that comment really resonated with me because I was writing an email as like a marketer. I wasn't writing them like a storyteller, especially to my fiction audience. You know, and you've really got to do it for, for fiction because you're not talking to other writers there who are, might be expecting you to be a bit marketer e Is that a word? Um, you're talking to, you know, real flesh and blood people, civilians, you know. So I try and make sure that all my emails are a story, you know, and, and my Facebook posts, that there's a story behind it. I'm not just saying, oh, you know, this is the 99th anniversary of the, the Tulsa massacre. Try, try and make an actual narrative about it. You know, and, and you can do that in a couple of paragraphs and it's something you can click into quite quickly because we are storytellers. Like we, it's just a different format that you got to get used to. All right. My last question for you on Facebook or any of the other platforms that people may want to do. How much do you feel, it's, it's kind of hard to measure, but how much do you feel you're actually attracting new readers that way? Or is it more about like bringing in your existing readers and keep reminding them, Hey, I exist. Here's a snippet, you know, sharing things that they're interested in. Do you think you get new new folks that actually buy your books from your Facebook posts? Well, I think, you know, it's a little bit of both, but I think it's important to recognize what a platform is uniquely good at and what, is, what it is truly for. And I'm of the firm belief that a platform is there to engage your existing readers. So, like, I, I always try and think of a platform as a reader capturing device. You know, so, you know, it's, it's an old adage in business that it's much easier and cheaper to keep an existing customer than it is to go out and beat the bushes and find a new one. So for me, like, that's why I hate all the advice given out of conferences, especially by agents and editors who quite frankly don't know what they're talking about. And they're always like, you know, you need 5,000 Facebook likes, you need 10,000 Twitter followers or else nobody's going to buy your book. And I'm like, that's not how it works. That's not even what a platform is for. It's there to capture your existing customers. It's kind of like aftercare. It's, it, it's a way of making sure that they buy your next book. It's a way of keeping people engaged in between your releases. It's a way of making sure that people don't forget who you are. Because we forget, like, okay, we're, we're all this, you know, I'm the center of my universe, and I'm sure you guys are the center of your universe, right? Unless you have children, and then it might, you might have devolved some of that slightly in, in, their, in their direction. But readers have their own lives. We're not the only author in their lives. Some readers might, might have read 200 books in a year. Some might have, might have read 50 or more. It, it's so easy for them to forget who you are. But if they like your Facebook page and they follow you on BookBub and they visit your website and they sign up to your mailing list, there's way less chance of them forgetting who you are, you know, and you're not leaving it in the lap of the gods then, you know, hoping that Amazon tells them about your next release. They're getting an email from me. And if they go on Facebook, they're going to see a Facebook ad retargeting. Them. And if they go on to BookBub, they're going to see something else there. And I think, you know, the, the more hooks you get into a reader, the more places they follow you, the more chance is that they will buy your book in that crucial launch week window. And also that they'll actually become a really engaged fan that will go out and do the selling for you, which is what you ultimately want. All right. Excellent. We've had you for about an hour, so I guess we better let you go. It's probably bedtime over there in Portugal. Um, can you remind people where they can find, uh, find you and 
what your bonuses are right now and let's see amazon decoded is coming on to tell us everything <laughs> yeah so this is you know this is the place in a podcast where i usually stumble because my name is difficult to it's not it's, it's not hard for me to pronounce i've had a little bit of practice over the years but it, people don't know how to, how to spell it when i say it so i actually did this thing where i, I bought the domain marketing with a story.com so if you go to that and redirect now to my website so i could say that now on podcast go to marketing with a story.com and then you'll use you'll magically get transported to my website. And when you do get there, you'll see I've got a bunch of stuff now for authors. I think you know the number one thing that you should do is definitely sign up to my mailing list because not only do you get a free copy of the book following that we've been talking about, it's also a weekly marketing newsletter where we cover all sorts of topics, breaking down the Amazon algorithms. We've done this whole series of, of, of emails on how to use Facebook ads, how to use BookBub ads, all sorts of stuff. Um, and the cool thing is when you sign up, you actually get access to all the old emails. There's this email archive. It's broken down by topics. So if you just want to learn Facebook ads, sign up, go into the email archive, and there's like 12-part series on Facebook ads. And all that's free, of course. So there's no reason not to sign up. Um, by the time this airs, I think Let's Get Digital, the fourth edition, the latest edition, will have just been published. Um, if you see it at 99 cent, don't buy it because it's going to be free in a few days. So, but it, it might be free by the time you, you actually hear the podcast. So that's going to be free. That's going to be perma-free. And I've got a course coming as well called Starting From Zero, um, which will be launching at the exact same time as Let's Get Digital. So it should be out by the time you hear this as well. And, and you should definitely check that out because uh, it's a totally new thing that I'm trying. I think it's going to be very useful for people. It actually walks them through all the different steps of setting up your platform, setting up your first promotions, and every single aspect of that. So if that's something you're looking for, definitely check it out. But if you're more if you're a more experienced author, Amazon Decoded 2 is coming probably by the time you hear this in a couple of weeks. All right. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time today. And thank you for listening, everyone, and to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. Thanks, everyone. Have a good week. So long, Thanks, everybody. Guys.